millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Kieran Millwood Hargrave on her latest novel, The Dance Tree. Kieran Millwood Hargrave is an award-winning poet, playwright and novelist. Her best-selling works for children include The Girl of Ink and Stars and have won or been short or long-listed for numerous awards. The Mercies was her first novel for adults and it became an instant Sunday Times bestseller. It won a Betty Trask Award, was long-listed for the Jarrett Prize and was named amongst the New York Times 100 Most Notable Books of 2020. And today we're going to be talking about Kieran's second novel for adults, which is The Dance Tree. Kieran, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me back. Tell us then how you would describe this one. So The Dance Tree is a work of historical fiction. It's based on real events that happened in Central Europe in a city called Strasbourg in 1518, when a woman began to dance in the city square. And she danced for days and no one could make her stop. And eventually she had to be carted off to a shrine and blessed. And only then did she stop dancing. But it was too late. By then, hundreds more had begun to dance. And over the course of the next two months, Strasbourg experienced a summer (laughs) unlike anything they had ever experienced before, with hundreds of people dancing in the streets, seemingly uncontrollably and without consciousness and several unfortunately lost their lives thanks to the heat exhaustion so that forms the backdrop um, this incredible true event forms the backdrop to my book which is really a character study about a woman called Lisbeth who is living on a small beekeeping farm just outside Strasbourg and is struggling to unravel a mystery surrounding the return of her sister-in-law Agneta. So tell us something more about Lisbeth then so who is she? Lisbeth, and really it's only in the last six months I can honestly give you this answer, (laughs) because Lisbeth changed more than any character I have ever written. When I first started writing her and encountered her on the page, she was an incredibly spiky, quite precocious young woman in her early 20s, in her first pregnancy. And the Lisbeth that readers will meet in the dance tree is, um, in medieval times, past it. She's in her 30s and she has unfortunately lost a dozen pregnancies and is in another pregnancy and very much hoping to have a living child. So she's a woman who is living with enormous grief, but also with enormous hope. 
and she has created beauty and meaning in her life through her work with the bees and also in a magical place that she keeps secret called the dance tree. And these were real places, real um, platforms built into trees by pagans in Middle Europe. And they would be used as churches, courts, dance halls, all up among the branches. And Lisbeth has recovered one of these for her own purposes to remember her lost children. She hasn't lost all of her spikiness. She's still quite suspicious of any incomers when her sister-in-law, Agnetta, returns. She's determined to uncover why she was sent away in the first place. But she has very much become someone forged by grief, transformed by grief, and given a new perspective on life because of it. Let's just go back to, to Strasbourg for a minute. So it's, it's 1518 when the book is set. Tell us what the, I guess, the social, socio-political situation is in Strasbourg. Who's in charge? Who's running the place? And some of the characters in the book, Sebastian Brandt, who is the, um, the leader of the, the council, the exactly. sort of religious council that's overseeing the city, is a real historical figure, for instance. Yes, so there's a council called the 21, which was actually more than 21, (laughs) men who ran everything from church affairs to trade, um, to making laws and, you know, handing out um, various punishments. So they were the people who were in charge of deciding what to do with the dancers. But if we go back a bit and, and place this within the context of the time, it was a time of such extraordinary and rapid change. At the turn of the century in 1498 to 1500, there had been a comet spotted in the sky and people very much saw this as a sign of damnation sent from God to punish them for their sinful ways. And this was confirmed when it plunged into a field just outside Strasbourg and sort of burnt up an entire field of corn. And really what that comet heralded was an incredible time of awful suffering that was mainly, we know now, caused by a miniature ice age that was on its way. So there was real climate change happening. But of course, in those days, it was all either sent by God or the devil. So there was an atmosphere of building tension, fear, hysteria, because People's crops were not growing because of the intense heat in summer, the intensely cold winters. There were droughts. There were hailstones that fell the size of fists. They had something called the hungry winter. All the while this was happening, there was a war going on at the edges of the Holy Roman Empire, which for so many years had been a seat of strong power and solidity in people's lives. And it was completely crumbling against the advance of the Ottoman Turks. And that brought a whole new level of fear and, of course, the added element of racism into that, that these invaders had dark skin and they were said to be devilish and they came straight from hell and that's why their skin was dark. And this information was all spread by the invention of the printing press, which, of course, was invented in Strasbourg. So Strasbourg really was at this crunch point, this crunch place in terms of all these different pressures pushing in on people. People were incredibly poor. They were incredibly hungry and they were subject to power plays, large and small, and none of it made sense. And the only thing they could think to do was pray. And it's not a a hugely helpful weapon if 
praying doesn't work if your prayers aren't answered. So Sebastian Brandt, when the dancing plague was sent upon them, initially he ran council, as you said, and initially he ordered that um, musicians should be brought in to make people dance more, to play the devil out of the dancers, and quickly realised that made many more people join the dancing if there was watered down ale and watered down wine and music and stages built it was just encouraging the fever so then they stripped away all the music people were still dancing so eventually they led them to the shrine it was just an incredible summer and came at the end of a a patch of time that was so influenced by so many catastrophes and in the story, this real life comet, well, I mean, it's a meteorite with, I've seen photographs of it, it's a real, a real thing that still exists. Lisbeth herself has a very personal connection to it in the story. Yes, so the field that the comet ploughed up upon its landing is Elizabeth's father's field. And her childhood is sort of parceled out throughout the story to really give you an insight into why she feels herself to be deserving of her repeated losses. She takes upon herself the responsibility for that comet and all the calamities that followed, including, unfortunately, the illness of her mother, both mental and physical, which now we would probably characterise as a stroke or similar. But, you know, then they wouldn't have had that understanding. They wouldn't have had those words. So she sees the comet's landing on the same night that she was born, very much as a sign that she is completely damned and an omen of all that is bad. On the farm, they keep bees, and you talk about the the beekeeping in the book, or you know, Lisbeth particularly through her with like real love. And I wanted to talk to you about researching medieval beekeeping. It was hard to begin with. I could not find because I was writing this book in the pandemic, and I just could not find the right material online. And then eventually came across this wonderfully arcane-looking reproduction of a medieval text which was all about medieval farming. And it had a whole chapter on bees and beekeeping. And, you know, very little has changed. Bees and their needs have remained the same. But of course, the techniques are incredibly different. And they used to keep bees in these woven hives, almost called skeps. So that was already, I was learning a new language and a new visual language in terms of how medieval beekeeping differed. And one thing I found particularly resonant was how honey was a discard. It was worthless and wax was what was precious in medieval times. And this was because the Holy Roman Empire had decreed that only beeswax could be burned in churches. And if you think about the number of churches, the number of cathedrals and the size of those cathedrals, and churches. It was big business to keep bees. And so Lisbeth and her family, you know, they're not doing badly in terms of uh, the time. They're not struggling in the same way as many of the people in the city are. But their farm is under threat from a nearby monastery who is trying to encroach on their ownership and lay claim to their beehives. So that adds a sort of ticking clock element to the book. You know, will they lose their farm? Won't they lose their farm? But it was really, I'm glad you enjoyed those passages because I really love Loved writing those moments of Lisbeth in her element, working with the bees. I thought it was so important to show that she has skill and a purpose outside being a mother. And she really does have an incredible affinity for the bees. 
You've already raised this a little, but I wanted to talk a, a bit more about the climate elements that creep into the story. Because as you said, we this time in medieval history was there was like a lot of climate disruption, a little ice age was on the horizon. And I wanted to talk about how that is affecting Strasbourg and the people at this time. It was, I mean, there's the material effect, like the, how it was impacting crops. So you would have winters so hard that the seeds would die in the earth. And then you'd have summers so hot that there just simply wasn't enough water to keep the crops going to a good harvest. Or you'd have this awful sort of freeze-thaw effect where crops would be turned to rotten mush in the fields by intensely cold and intensely hot weather sort of coming from winter to spring to summer in this relentless cycle. You know, there simply wasn't enough food and people had to turn increasingly to the church and its vast stores of grain. And the church would provide, but only then would keep the debt on record, of course. And that provoked enormous anger in sort of the farming population. And actually between the comet appearing and 1518, when our story begins in the dance tree, I think there were seven rebellions uh, led by this man called Joss Fritz and thousands of, of farmers uh, joined him and, and hundreds were hanged for rebelling against the church landlords. But Joss Fritz was never caught. He kept escaping and sort of disappearing into the Black Forest. So he became this incredible, almost mythic figure of hope and of rebellions. There was this real sense of this can't be right. There can't be, you know, sheds and and barns full of grain and, and people are starving to death in the streets. So there was that practical element of, of starvation and the resultant unrest within the population. There was also just the bizarre experience of living through weather that you had never seen or heard of. You know, we're living through that at the moment. We're seeing incredible, awful weather events that are impacting lives all over the world. But we have science to answer for it. We know why these things are happening and to a certain extent can anticipate where and how they will happen. Of course, they did not have that at the time that I'm writing. So it's a very unsettled population. It's a very scared population. It's a very hungry population. And I'm, I don't know if you're the same as me, but when I'm hungry, I'm quite angry. <laughs> so it's, you know, this population that really is in a state of high unrest and disease. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kieran Millwood Hargrave and we're talking about her new novel, The Dance Tree. And Kieran, you've already mentioned the dancing plague of Strasbourg that is the backbone of this story and how they chose to deal with it. But this was not a one-off. This was a, a phenomenon that happened again and again over quite a long period of time in the Middle Ages. And what do we think now would have been the cause of these? It was an incredible time. There was a real spate of dancing plagues and the Strasbourg one was the largest and the deadliest ever recorded. But like you say, there were outbreaks all over and there were lots of theories put forward. Obviously, the contemporary theory was either devilish or godly possession. And then there was a very popular theory about ergot, which is a kind of bacteria, fungus that grew on crops and that people were consuming this and it would cause convulsions um, and pain in the legs and cause uncontrollable spasming of the legs. There was also a theory about the fact that people were starving so they were foraging in the woods and maybe people were getting high off of mushrooms inadvertently picking hallucinogenics in the woods. But there is a spectacular book that I must mention called A Time to Dance and A Time to Die uh, by John Waller. And he has done the most extensive research on the 1518 epidemic. And he concludes that it's the particular conditions of the time, all those pressures we've been talking about, mixed with the crumbling of a, a civilization as they knew it, um, you know, with the encroachment of the Ottoman Turks. And really, it was a mass hysteria, a mass mania that created the conditions that made it possible for people to enter this trance-like state and collectively dance this way. 
So the best answer I have is mass hysteria. And I would assume that the smaller outbreaks, whilst his book doesn't focus on them, and I didn't focus them on them in my research, had a very similar answer. He gives a very convincing argument about why ergot and mushrooms just wouldn't last long enough for people to be dancing for this amount of time and with such abandonment that they literally would dance themselves to death. So that's the best answer that's been put forward, in my opinion. I don't want to talk about this next object in context of any of the particular characters because I don't want to give anything away of the story. But the story does contain a look at the the lived experience of queer people at this time as well. And I wonder if you'd tell us something about what that would be like. Absolutely. So... Again, no character names, you're quite right. But the characters who are involved, and it was very similar in The Mercies, it was about putting two people on a page in a room together and realising there was an attraction there. And always, when I'm writing historical fiction, foremost in my mind is I want to treat these characters like people of their time. I don't want to force contemporary attitudes upon them. So unfortunately... (laughs) they experience some awful prejudice. And the term for lesbianism in this time was actually female sodomy, which made my editor laugh every time she heard it for some reason. It's just such an ugly term, but it was punishable. It was written in law, thanks to quite a famous case involving a noblewoman. And there were particular punishments visited on people for female sodomy. And I'm sure people are fully aware of the awful attitudes towards gay men, and they weren't much better towards gay women. But there was maybe more of a willingness to overlook, provided it was all very much concealed. And so it was a life of enormous shame, enormous risk. But I also, any time a person gets to live their freedom and live their true expression has to be celebrated. And there are very much moments of celebration in this book and celebrations of queer love. And I really wanted to show that you know, queer people have always existed, uh, will always exist, and laws are not going to and have never made a difference to that. It's just about how hard we make people's lives. So there are characters in this book, multiple queer characters, and all of them have different outcomes. And that is basically based on their ability to conceal who they really are. You talked about the situation that was going on with the Ottoman Empire at the time and, I mean, Turks, as they're described in the book, but obviously we're talking about Muslim people and how they would have been seen by Europeans at that time. And one of the major characters in the book, Eren, is, as described in the book, a Turk. He's a travelling musician. And I want to talk about how then, I mean, presumably this would have been a, a typical trade of a Muslim man that found himself at the heart of Europe in the time when he was seen as literally a devil. Yes, you know, it's really one of the only uh, occupations that, I mean, no occupation would have been free from from danger for someone who, who looks like Erin and lives in the world like Erin. But being a musician... Musicians were already outsiders. They were already people who travelled widely and as such were inherently diverse, inherently diverse profession. 
And so he has found enormous acceptance within the the traveling musician community, and especially with his his best friend Frederick, and their sort of a brotherhood. And there is apps. I think at times Aaron forgets that he is a living personification of the devil to these white people who dance to his music. But he's very much reminded of that in Strasbourg. And it's really only Lisbeth who who tolerates him and takes him, sees him as a person first and foremost, um, from the first really the first moment she sees him. And this is because her father would have had labourers who would have come from the Ottoman Empire to, to work on the farm. Because as with any war, there were as many brown-skinned victims as there were white-skinned. And there were lots of refugees living in Europe. And that sort of mass immigration was also causing quite a lot of panic. So Lisbeth and Erin find this acceptance in each other. Um, they sort of it's not an entirely healthy dynamic. They sort of take what they need from each other and see what they need in each other. But it is a very lovely friendship that develops through the book. And they do teach each other a lot. And writing Erin's character, I think, just adds to the sense of the, not only the strangeness of time and place, but also the familiarity and maybe holds up a little bit of a mirror to the times we're living in right now. You mentioned the, the book by John Waller and, and in the first half, the, the medieval text on, on farming. Um, but I wondered what other books were an influence on this particular novel? I absolutely love the book Perfume and it might not be the most obvious comparison text, but there is something about the way that book is written, the utter dedication, obviously, to scent and therefore to all the senses and the inherent sexuality and sensuality that pervades that entire book was something I really wanted to lean into in writing The Dance Tree. The Mercies was very much a book about a very stripped back time and place. And I wanted to luxuriate in the fact I was writing about a beekeeper living in the hottest summer that anyone living had ever known and the way that that affected you know sense and movements and what people wore and I wanted this to be a multi-sensory experience so perfume was definitely a text that inspired me I always look at Margaret Atwood's historical fiction alias Grace I think is just an immaculate demonstration of what historical fiction can do her attention to the details the domestic details the stitching that grace always has with her i think is very evocative and i definitely looked at that i also love and this is another strange comparison text but i love rose tremaine's restoration it's a lot bawdier than the dance tree it's very funny but again there is no pandering to a contemporary sensibility. It all feels very much of its time. And she's not ashamed to really lean into and transport you to a completely different place and time. So in terms of my touchstone texts, those three were the ones I always had on my desk and sort of would look at longingly and hope that they created some sort of magical osmosis into my book. You mentioned at the beginning that Lisbeth, the character, had changed a lot over the course of writing the story. And the the woman that we meet in the novel is somebody who has had multiple babies lost over the years. And she 
ties ribbons to commemorate them at the dance tree the tree is her place where she can she can go and sit and reflect and remember and this is an incredibly moving story but made even more poignant by the fact that we know that this is your own experience as well and I wondered how you hope this novel will be received by other people that might have experienced something similar It's impossible not to go through one pregnancy loss and be completely changed. My husband and I unfortunately lost six pregnancies while I was writing this book. And working in that sort of mental and physical pain, it really was awful, but it also was incredibly transformative. And I think that I have come out, much like Lisbeth, uh, a stronger and fiercer person and a better writer in short and really one of my purposes about you know the use of language I was talking about about the sensuality and the very much right from the body so your experiences you're brought very close to Lisbeth's body and her experiences of the world as she moves through it and I really did want that to create empathy in people who haven't experienced it because I think even now there is an enormous amount of silence and shame around pregnancy loss and a sense of failure sort of bred into into it um, for the women involved but also for the women who have experienced it and I already have had such incredible and moving generous responses to this book people telling me that for the first time they've told anyone they're a mother to two children who are alive and one who is not and different things like that and saying how it was nice to read a book that didn't turn away from that experience that is unbearably common and just unbearable as well. So it's been a real, I didn't know when I was writing it that it was going to be successful. It's very hard to write from a raw place. But thanks to the guidance of my editor, I do think the dance tree has something to say about accessing that pain and also that love, the enormous love that anyone will feel the moment they know they're going to become a parent you become a parent, Uh, you're already anticipating that whole life that lies ahead of you. And when that's taken away, it's something truly cruel. And it's nice to have had somewhere to put those feelings and to to give Lisbeth agency as well. I feel like she taught me as much as I gave her. To finish it off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Of course, I'm going to read the opening, uh, which sets up where you are. The book is interspersed with these snippets of biography of various lives of the dancers, because otherwise they'd just be a faceless mass. So this is the snippet of Frau Trophia, who is the first woman who began to dance. None dancing. She heard there was bread in the square. It's possible it's a lie, or that the loaves are so blighted as to be inedible, but Frau Trophia doesn't care. The hope is as nourishing as anything she's had in her throat these past months. She went mushroom picking with the others, laid traps to skin hairs in the forests like Egyptians. Nothing. Even the animals are starved out after the hungry winter, this scorched summer. She brought home an unnested bird and cooked it right on the ashes of their fire, chewed through its soft, shattering bones, chafing her gums until her mouth filled with iron and salt. Her husband doesn't know how she suffers, has never seemed to know hunger. 
he grows sinewy, muscles like ropes wrapping his arms. But she has it inside her like a child, and it grows and sucks and swells her belly until she cramps with carrying the full weight of its gnawing emptiness. She has started chewing offcuts of leather. She has started sucking the ends of her hair and contemplating stray dogs with new attention. She has started seeing white lights hang before her in the air. Lately, she can stir them about with her finger. But Frau Trophia has not yet lost her mind, and as she stumbles through her city, she comes up with a plan. If the bread is burnt, she can soak it in the river until it softens. If it is rotted, perhaps others will have left it. If there is not bread, or if it is all gone, she can fill her pockets with stones and walk into the water, as others have done. The almshouses are overrun, the graveyards too. The end of the world is coming, from the streets to the churches they proclaim it. Gyla, the trumpet of Strasbourg Cathedral, is eight years dead, but his words adorbed on walls, echoed from the pulpits of the cathedral. There is not one among us who can be saved. The comet that dragged its fiery tail over the turn of the century and damned them is lifted from its crater and placed on an altar. But too late, she prays as she walks, though her rosary is long gone, the clay beads cracking between her teeth like bird bones. Frau Trophia swirls a thread of light through her fingers, soft as lamb's wool. Swept runs down her lip and her back, soaks the reeking cloth of her dress. The sun has seared the soles of her feet where she fell asleep outside a tavern at midday. The drink, it is new for her, and something they can ill afford. That alone is plentiful. Her husband has not come looking for her all night. Her feet are chafing on the cobbles, and it is good to feel them again the blisters making way for new skin. Her route takes her through the horse market, built when Strasbourg had a different centre so that it would stand at the edges. Now there are complaints from the Cathedral of the Smell, but Frau Trophia likes it, sour and strong enough to coat her tongue. She opens her mouth, fills her lungs. The market square is listless and sways before her. She searches the closed-up stalls, the dusty ground, the grates clogged with muck dried hard by heat. She smells the sweet and the shit of it, of her city, baking under the relentless, blessed, accursed sun. Her head is full of it as she searches, hand raking the dust, thick handfuls of dirt. She murmurs a prayer like an incantation, as though God would drop loaves from the sky. But nothing falls except heat on her back, her calves, the burnt soles of her feet, and she wonders again why her husband has not come looking for her. She is crying, but she is not ashamed. The tendrils of light swarm about her like flies, heavenly and ravelling her in their soft threads and weave. Her hands are full of earth and excrement. Her fingernails itch and she wants to peel them off. The light tickles her beneath the chin. Frau Trophia tilts her head back, looks at the sun until her eyes fill with white. The light swirls about her like a cloud, buffeting her gentle as a wind-knocked sail. She picks up her foot, then the other. Her hips sway. She parts her lips in ecstasy. Beneath the blue and burning sky, Frau Trophia lifts up her hands and begins to dance. So I've been talking to Kieran Millwood Hargrave. We've been talking about her new novel, The Dance Tree, which is out in the UK from Picador. Kieran, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you, Neil. It's lovely to be back. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. <laughs>